Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. How do you feel about cisgendered writers creating trans characters? I just like don't say no to anything like this. I just don't think anything is off the table. Hello and welcome to Love Lives, a podcast from The Independent where I, Olivia Petter, speak to different people about the loves of their lives. Today I am so excited to be speaking to Nicola Dynan, author of one of the most highly anticipated novels of the year, Bellies. There is already a TV adaptation in the works from the same production company who made Normal People. So it's safe to say this book is set to be a huge hit. So I can't wait to speak to Nicola about it. So let's begin. Hi Nicola, how are you doing? Hi, I'm well, how are you? I'm good, I'm good. So as I said in the intro, the book has had a lot of hype already. It's gonna be have this huge kind of glossy TV adaptation. Can you start us off by introducing the book, how it, how it came to you, how you started writing it? When did you start writing it? So I started writing the book in August of 2020. So it started almost like as a lockdown project and uh, it had started initially as a short story. So, you know, I think earlier that year I'd written a short story, was sending it to literary journals, hoping it'd be published um, with the view of, oh, maybe if I publish that story and a few other stories and I get into some big name literary journals, hopefully, you know, then I'll feel qualified enough to write a book. Um, but sadly, like no one wanted my short stories. Like, um, and then I came to a point, well, okay, well, I do really want to write a book. So what do I do now? And so I started writing uh, Bellies because, you know, I just thought, you know, I, I just should. It's, it's the book I want to write. And, you know, I think there's that very rightly cliche of, you know, the first book you write is the book you have to write. Mm. And the second book you write is the book you want to write. Um, but it very much has felt that way with writing bellies. Uh, so I wrote it then at the end of 2020 and, you know, got the book deal a year and a half later. But I found that once I started writing it, it was like the words were just coming out and it ended up being a much quicker process than I thought it would be, which is really, which was really nice. And how did, did you start with a kind of clear trajectory of how the plot was gonna go? Or did you just kind of have these two characters in your mind and the plot kind of came out from there? Yeah, I had the two characters in my mind. I knew that Ming's transition was always going to be the center of gravity of the book. But as I moved on with the writing, it became really evident that the book was much bigger than Ming's transition mm. and its impact on her relationship with Tom. And the book became much more expansive. You know, you have this whole cast of characters who are, you know, largely queer, um, largely people of color, um, existing around Tom and Ming, each going through their individual struggles. And uh, in that sense, this one event, Ming's transition and its impact on her relationship with Tom sends ripples and it becomes 
uh, a lot more about a novel about relationships and not just romantic relationships, but uh, the relationships we have with our parents and our friends. And so I didn't quite anticipate when I started Bellies uh, that it would speak to so much more than being trans. Mm, yeah, no, I think it really does. And I think I'm so excited to see the conversations that it starts when it's on the big screen. Because I think with books like this, it's so important that they have that maximum visibility, I think, to, to start those really important conversations. Because it's so, you know, it, we, we have nothing like this, really. And it's about time that we finally have stories like this on a kind of mainstream level. Um, talk to me a bit about what you said about the book not being about identity. Because in an interview, you kind of said that rather than being a book about identity and kind of, I guess, how you identify it, from a gender perspective, it's more about two young people struggling to find their place in the world, mm. all while learning how to care for each other and for those around them. What do you mean when you say it's about that as opposed to being about identity? Because I think the word identity to some people, it, it carries connotation. Because I mean, I think that's sort of the same thing, but to some people, I think maybe that word identity scares people in a way or it makes them think it's about something that it's necessarily not, if you see what I mean. Yeah, you know, I think when I said that, it's, it's not, it relates to what I just said about the book, mm. not just being about transness, but you know, you could substitute Ming's transition for so many other things. I think what's been striking now, you know, speaking from this present moment where the book is sort of a week from being released, um, and still having had the opportunity to speak to people who aren't trans, who um, aren't even queer and are quite far away from Tom and Ming's experiences, still finding the novel very relatable. And I think you could substitute Ming's transition for a whole number of events. You know, you could just substitute it for any form of like bereavement, you know, and particularly on Tom's end or any particular change in life, like moving somewhere new. You know, there are all these uh, events in life that cause a great sense of upheaval. And so when I spoke about the novel, not just being identi about identity, that's sort of what I meant. Mm. You know, ov obviously a quest uh, for who you are and transition can cause big change, but so can a lot of things. And in all of those instances, there's almost this impetus to look around you and think, okay, well, how do I care for those go going through this change or impacted by this change? And I think that's what the novel speaks to in addition to being trans. That being said, I think it's really great that the novel has a trans character and that I get to write um, from the perspective of a trans character who, uh, and I think, you know, on the one hand, it's not about identity, just about identity, but people will read Ming's experience and relate relate to it and hopefully develop a more attuned sense of empathy for trans people. And, you know, that's something that I think we need. You know, there's such a almost quite like devilish portrayal of like, you know, trans people in the media. You know, people think we're like injecting testosterone into kids as like Capra sons or something. And that's so insane to me. And there's not much to counterbalance that. And I think so that there's, you know, we have wonderful writers like Sean Fay who wrote The Transgender Issue, but I think fiction has an important role here too. 
Um, and I wrote the book just kind of realizing that no matter what, the book was going to be political because of that reason, because trans people's existence, their existence is politicized. So, you know, naturally I, I did want to make this experience which felt so specific. You know, I think for someone who isn't trans, the idea of, for some people who aren't trans, the idea of transitioning feels like so many worlds away. It's like, how could I even imagine myself being in those shoes? Um, but I think hopefully a book like Belly's just makes it feel a little bit more universal. Yeah, and I think what you said about popular culture is so important because it does have such a crucial role in terms of shaping perceptions and, and eliciting that empathy in a way that is just fundamentally much harder to do with nonfiction, I think. Um, and so I, I think it will really kind of tap into, like you said, that kind of deeper level of understanding and and relatability like you said um, and unexpected relatability for for a cisgendered person I think as well yeah I think so and you know one thing I've had from some people who've read the book and this is tends to be uh people who are maybe slightly older and maybe haven't encountered a trans person before um you know I've been told that Belly's taught them a lot and that's a very surprising thing. It's a very scary thing because I'm like, I didn't write a book to suddenly be someone's teacher. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, I'm not like professor of trans studies at trans university. Um, and yet suddenly I feel this burden from having this book that might have a meaningful impact on people. But I do think it's something to embrace and also something to be cautious of, you know, just as well as like books can teach, um, can teach meaningfully about experiences. They can also, you know, detract from a meaningful perspective on certain experiences. And I think we've had a lot of the latter about trans people. You know, I just think of like Buffalo Bill from, uh, what's it called, Silence of the Lambs. <laughs> like that just like popping up in my head. And I just think we've had a lot of that. And yeah, I, I'm so excited to be part of like a wave of fiction that maybe tries to reverse that mm, a little bit. Definitely. And you write the book both from Tom's perspective and from Ming's perspective. Why do you think it was important to you to have both of their voices in the book and have them kind of running alongside each other? And how do you think that helps create the depth and the complexity of each of these characters? I think it's so necessary because if, I think if you've read Tom's perspective or just Ming's perspective alone, particularly because there's a lot of conflict between them throughout the novel, you might read it all from Tom's perspective and be like, wow, like... Ming's a dickhead or you might read it all from like Ming's perspective and be like Tom fucking sucks but there's this real importance for me as a writer to present a sense of judiciousness um and it is you know I think some writers love to write books with unreliable narrators and not have any form of like check and balance and that in itself is a really interesting literary trope but because my book is like fundamentally about relationships and fundamentally about how you know you can feel like someone's done so much wrong to you, but often the reality is, is that they were just trying their best and that they weren't intending to cause harm or they were just doing what they needed to do at that moment with the tools that they had. Um, and that is a very painful and you know unfair reality that you kind of have to come to terms with as you become an adult, you know, that there's not this conspiracy against you um, and that often people are just trying their best. And I think it would have been really hard to communicate that yeah had it just been from one of their perspectives you know you would have looked at I'm just thinking of for example 
the play that Ming wrote, you know? So in the novel, Ming writes a play called Thin Frames, which is in part based on her and Tom's relationship. And this sort of, like, there's almost a united view amongst Tom and his friends or the friends who are closer to him that the play was like wrong and exploitative. But I do think from Ming's perspective, you see, okay, well, why is she, you know, such a careerist? And why is she so ruthlessly ambitious? I think through having insight into her own perspective, you see she's incredibly afraid to be alone. And she's thinking, well, if I'm going to be alone, well, I might as well have a career. And, you know, when you understand where someone's coming from, it builds a sense of compassion for both the characters. I think compassion is at the core of the novel. Um, and so it wouldn't have really made sense for me also to have written it in any, any other way. But also, you know, from writing the perspective of like transitioning, I think if it was just from Ming's perspective, and I think a lot of people would just expect this book to be by a trans character, or rather written from the perspective of a trans character if it involves transition. But, you know, I, I was trying to make it feel a bit more universal to not just be about the transition, which is why, by the way, there aren't that many details about Ming's like physical transition, although we're aware it happens. Um, we don't spend much time with her through that process. Um, and it's because I wanted to focus on the impact of transitional transition as a relational thing mm. and having to having two perspectives, both Tom and Ming's really helped to achieve that. Yeah, it's so interesting because I think we have a very one-sided view of relationships in life, don't we? Mm. Because even if it's, obviously we only experience our own experiences in a relationship, but we also only experience a one-sided view from the relationships of our friends because we only get their perspective. Yeah. Unless we're friends with both people, but you know, generally if we're only friends with one person in a relationship, you do get a very biased view. And I think, like you said, you end up just, you know, thinking, oh, well, they're a dickhead, they're a dickhead. Yeah. It's, it's actually just not a helpful way to view humanity or no, romantic sure. relationships. And it like really inhibits growth anyway. So I think it's it's a useful tool for life <laughs> to think about it from both yeah. sides. It sounds so simple, but I feel like none of well, us it's do so that. True. It's like everyone talks about like political polarization. Yeah. Like, wow, like the left is so like polarized from the right. But it's like, have you examined the polarization with your boyfriend? Yeah. It's like, it's crazy. It's Romantic like how, polarization. Yeah, or like even polarization with your friendship group. That yeah. kind of polarization and siloing and echo chambering happens you know in every aspect of our day-to-day -day. Yeah. I think what's so fun for me as a writer as well is like you know having to write both sides of a relationship I almost like check myself it's like I'm being like forced to do that exercise of put my, putting myself um in someone else's mind and you know at times in the book I feel more aligned with Tom and at other times in the book I feel more aligned with Ming um and feel like a sense of anger for the other person. But then when I switch the perspectives, it sort of levels me out a bit. Mm. I think it is something I can kind of take into my actual life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It'd be useful for all of us to do that. Yeah. Um, and do you think of this book as a love story? Or if you had to kind of categorize it in any genre, would you say it's a romance book? Uh, I think the like literary fiction author, quote unquote, in me is like, at any sense of like genre, I sort of squirm because I'm like, oh, like what if that's like a reductive way to look yeah. at it? Um, but you know, I, I can't admit that there's a lot of love in the novel, but I think it's, you know, there's a sense of subversion of that idea of a love story because I think the novel is looking at how does love 
transform. Um, it's looking at the existence of multiple kinds of love. You know, I rarely see books about friendship being described as love stories, but I often think they should be, you know, I think those are perhaps like some of the most meaningful relationships and long lasting relationships I will ever have in my life. Um, and the love and care in those relationships are so rich. Um, and, you know, maybe I would want those novels about friendship to be described as love story too. So in actual fact, like maybe I will claim love story for this. <laughs> yeah, you know? I think we just have a very, we have a very reductive view of, of love stories, as you yeah. said. And I think we, when we socially think about love, we do tend to think about romantic love. Yeah, well, I think we have, yeah, I think, like, you know, it's not just that we have a reductive view about love stories. I think we have like quite a reductive view about love. Mm. And, you know, I've been to like a few weddings and I really enjoy them. It's so fun to like celebrate, you know, like friends coming together, like family coming together. But I suppose the one thing I've always found odd about weddings, and I suppose because there's such a huge expense in order to like kind of justify the expense and the whole, you know, charade, um, or I maybe shouldn't say charade, but you know, the whole event, there's this need to say, well, a romantic partner is the most important thing because why else would we be here, <laughs> you know, if, if that wasn't the most important thing? Like, why have I dropped a bomb on this marquee um, if, you know, this isn't the most important thing in your life? But there's a, you know, I, I, there's a sense of, okay, well, that's all that's there. Um, and sometimes I felt that I can go to a wedding and leave almost feeling like, oh, but there are so many other things to life and there are so many other things to love. And um, my friends mean so much to me and maybe a wedding isn't a place to express that. Um, but I think, you know, almost when you, when you, when there's someone you haven't seen in a really long time or if there's family members, they're very interested in who you're dating. And, you know, th th that tends to be um, the litmus test for whether you're happy or someone like asks if you're in a relationship and they, and you say yes and they immediately say, Oh, I'm so happy for you. Drives me mad. I was, yeah, Drives I'm like, me mad. I was like, what? Like, you know, like, you're not going to ask more questions? Well, because like, also, if you say, oh, oh, no, I'm not dating anyone at the moment, they're like, oh, oh, oh I can, I'm sure I can find someone to say. Have you tried the say, apps? Yeah, oh, I'm sure I can find someone to say. I was like, no, I'm happily single. Leave me the fuck Yeah, alone. so it's like, you know, there's this, um, there's this weird expectation that romantic love uh, equals happiness. I do think that's just like... Uh, symptomatic of that like reductive act yeah it's, we take I mean, towards love it's this idea that romantic love is going to save you yeah from something. and it's like no no you're like, going to save yeah, yourself I wish. Yeah, <laughs> the only person that can save you from anything is you yeah um there are so many lines that stand out to me in the book that i want to ask you about but one that i wanted to bring up was when tom tells ming that he came out late and then adds nobody wants to admit that people leave the closet but not the room that really struck me. What do you think Tom means when he says that to Ming? So I think there's a um, sense of lingering shame that a lot of queer people deal with. And also, you know, I think with stories of queer people generally, they often exist in extremes. Like we have these stories of like queer misery but then we have these like unrelenting stories of queer joy. And it's like, well, in reality, does like something more in the middle exist, you know, that you have maybe this very liberating act. And if you're lucky to have people around you who love and accept you for who you are, um, then that can be like extremely liberating. But at the same time, 
you still harbor all of those things that you've heard when you were younger, um, all of those little things that make you feel less worthy, that have a cumulative effect and how you relate to others in the present. So I think that's what I was trying to say when, you know, I wrote, you know, people leave the closet, but not the room. Um, and in the book, like Ming and Tom, with regards to Tom's sexuality, you know, his identity as a gay man and Ming's life as a trans woman, both of them haven't faced many barriers. Tom is this, you know, middle-class white boy who grows up in South London with like very well-meaning, very white parents um, and who are very open and accepting, even though they often occasionally, you know, not even occasionally, often make blunt blunders, you know. Uh, and Ming comes from a relatively financially privileged position, you know, she's able to afford hormone replacement therapy. Uh, and that means jumping through a very long NHS queue that's like very inhumane and a huge problem for trans people in the UK today. But despite those things and despite those barriers, they still face difficulties with respect to their own identities. And I think in that way, we over, uh, almost underestimate those little things we pick up as children and as teenagers, um, you know, before we have a real sense of ourselves or um, before we've formed a fully actualized version of ourselves. Um, and I really want to examine, well, in the absence of all those barriers, what's left behind and how does it affect us? Mm. Yeah, I think that's really interesting because those barriers you mentioned are things that you know, when we do read about trans issues in the news, those are the things that are going to come up. Mm -hmm. And I feel like it's those nuanced kind of things once we get past that, mm -hmm. because maybe there's this sense that, oh, once you overcome all of those barriers, you're fine. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, no, there's still, there's still like internal psychological difficulties no, exactly. because of, because of the way, because of transphobia and how rampant it is today. So I think it's interesting to actually put that all to one side and focus yeah. on the kind of deeper, way it affects your brains you know and I think that's a um a point you know that you know that's a really astute point to make because there's so you know that there is just so much media focus on um the physical aspects of transitioning and supporting trans people through that um and I think even really well-meaning allies will be like okay well you know, we really need to reduce the NHS times. We really need to make like surgical intervention available on the mm. NHS. Um, again, without really long wait times. But, and, and we do, and that is so important. But we also need to focus on, well, how do we actually like support people who have grown up in hostile, wider environments who've, or who have like suffered um, due to the impact of shame on their psyche? And I do think that sort of, we need to peel that back a bit. Uh, but, you know, for me as a writer, I think there was some fear of, okay, well, what if my book doesn't draw enough attention uh, to these bigger issues? And there's a lot of fear that like, I haven't discharged my responsibility as a writer to focus on things like long wait times on the NHS, even though, for example, Ming does kind of reflect on it briefly in the book. It's not at its center mm. and there's almost like the worry of like am I representing the trans experience yeah. fully or but appropriately? But also what's interesting about that is like you're a writer you're not 
an activist just because of your identity. And I think that's something that is often misplaced <laughs> culturally. Yeah, that's true. Like that's not necessarily your responsibility unless you want to make it your responsibility. Yeah, but, but maybe that's something that is thrust upon you. But I do think writers maybe some have some responsibility. And you know, I've been thinking a lot about this recently, that there maybe is, you know, some you know, maybe it is incumbent on some writers to kind of like if, if it's set in the reality that we live in, mm. if the book is set in the reality that we live in, then maybe it is incumbent on writers to, you know, situate their work in a broader context. Mm. And I have tried to do that with bellies. And, you know, I, I hope that by doing that, I've kind of discharged that responsibility of, you know, expressing that Ming's experience isn't necessarily representative. Although, you know, I also hope a reader will be able to do some of the work and realize that that will obviously not be the case. Mm. Um, but I do think writers have a little bit of responsibility, totally. even if they're not activists, because, you know, your work will engage with the broader world. world. And, you know, as I said earlier, there's something about bellies, even though it is so far from being like a work of, you know, a, a political work, there's something about it which will always be inherently political because of the context in which it is published. Mm, yeah. Um in one interview, this kind of goes back to what we were saying before, but you said that, you know, when we do have trans characters in popular culture, there's this impetus to create them as like completely virtuous. Yeah. Um, why why do you think that is? And and how do we move away from that? You know, is it does that come from a place of, of guilt or, or what what do you think that is? I think it comes from a place of fear. Mm. You know, I think um you look at like a very marginalized group and there's a fear of playing into people's unfair judgments on that group of people. You know, if I take trans women as an example, like some unfair like insults levied against trans women is often like narcissism or superficiality or cruelty. And there's a level to which in the book, Ming is kind of at times all of those things. And I think, you know, there's a fear of, okay, well, what if someone reads my book and thinks all trans women are narcissists, cruel, superficial? But, you know, to, in my view, firstly, you kind of have to accept that that can happen. You know, I think I, I, I've been, I, I was reflecting on when Tori Peters was nominated for the Women's Prize for Detransition Baby. And there was this open letter written um, against you know, the, 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 her being on the long list. And it was like the most incendiary letter. It was, it was like, actually, in some ways, I was talking to a trans friend of mine and we were like, this is kind of a gift because it's so horrible and like so awful that I don't think anyone could read this letter and think that that was okay, except that those people who signed it. You know, it's kind of um, those moments in life where you experience a microaggression and you feel unable to say anything about it and you almost wish that they just said what they meant and that letter said what it meant and it was so awful. Um, and it made me realize that people will read a book like Detransition Baby, which is so nuanced and so clever and still take what they want from it. Like if they wanna make a delusional take or they have a delusional sense of what a trans person is, 
that that will be, you know, what they take away from the book. And there's only so much you can do with that. Yeah, because um, they're not open to having their interpretation changed anyway. No, exactly. So, so there's a sense of like, okay, well, people are just going to take yeah. it from it what they want to. And that's like completely out of my hands. Um, and so when I wrote a character like Ming, who is at times um, these things that are, le- these terms that are levied against trans women, I was like, well, what I'm doing is actually giving context to why she might be a little narcissistic at times because she's in a world that is constantly judging her appearance and um she constantly feels like if she appears to be the wrong thing she might be in danger so of course that breeds a sense of narcissism and superficiality and she's also cruel because she's very hurt and Mm. she's in pain and she feels very lonely and you know i think rather than looking at, okay, well, this is just something she inherently is. If you give context those ex- to those experiences, they suddenly become a bit more meaningful, but they also lose their power um, in terms of being used against her as like, she is this way um, because there's like something inherently wrong with her, you know? So, but I think it's kind of necessary, you know, to in order to create empathy for a character to make them a little fallible but that's very scary to do you know and I think it's so much of the novel is like centered around vulnerability like the title as well is basically a novel it's essentially about vulnerability you know it's about showing your belly to someone where all your organs are in the fear that they're just going to gut you and walk away so but at the same time as a writer and as a trans writer it's also kind of a vulnerable act to put out a character who might just be received the wrong way and not be seen for who she is, but only for these actions read without context. Yeah. Um, but I think it's important as a writer, you know, just as um, it's important in relationships to be vulnerable, to be close to other people and to have people understand you and empathize with you and for you to empathize with them. I think it's in writing it's important to be vulnerable too and put characters out there um, that without quite knowing how a public will respond. And I think, but, but at the same time, you kind of have to take that risk to create meaningful characters that people find relatable. How do you feel about cisgendered writers creating trans characters? So, you know, I, I, I just like don't say no to anything like this. I just don't think anything is off the table right off the bat you know, then we have to kind of look at, okay, well, how do I write these experiences well, right? Mm -hmm. I think a cisgender person writing something to which like, about something about trans people when they've never even spoken or met a trans person, done no reading about what it means to be trans, very strange. But I think what we'll find is that it probably won't be a very good book. It probably won't be a book that will stand the test of time and I think a lot of writers, I think particularly of an older generation, though that is like a very blanket statement, but I think, and I think too often these cultural issues are just painted as generational divides when it's much more complicated. But I think um, for some writers who've maybe written a time where there's been like fewer ch- checks and balances with regards to what they want to write, the idea that there could be any curb on creativity is kind of unfathomable. They're like, well, I'd rather not write then. But it's like, you kind of have to take some care when writing. Um, I've said this a lot 
you know, in other talks and things where I think there is like a fine line between care and censorship. Um, and it might be a fine line and it's sometimes like difficult to navigate, but the line is there. And I think it's important to take care regardless. And the more, the further you write away from your own experience, the more care you have to take, the more research you have to do. And I think there's a greater responsibility on that writer to do that work. Um, but, and, and, but, you know, I think some pe trans cis people have really close relationships with trans people that are worth writing about. You know, The Argonauts by Maggie Nelson, I always say is such a good example of, you know, a cisgender woman writing so meaningfully on like a queer family, which involving a trans parent, you know, her partner, Harry Dodge. And it's such a beautiful book. And to offhand say that she can't write that um, is a bit silly. But I also haven't ever heard anyone say that cisgender people can't write trans characters or that people can't write outside of their own experiences. Like I've never actually heard anyone say this, but I think a lot of people who resist that idea like to say that that's what people are saying. Yeah. When really it's saying do, but also do research. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's so true. It's just one of those things that like actually isn't a problem. Yeah, but like one who that's... is actually saying this? Yeah, like people... when, when have I, like when has anyone said this to you? Yeah. Um, let's talk about the TV adaptation quickly because this is so exciting and I know that you're involved in the screenwriting process. How, how have you found that? And when you were writing Bellies, did you imagine it being on the screen? It's been so surreal. Like I think the manuscript for my book got leaked to TV production companies before I even had a book deal. So right after we signed the book deal, suddenly we had this really busy auction for selling the uh, rights to the TV show and it was so strange and there wasn't almost enough time to process things. I think I'm a very visual person. I've grown up watching a lot of TV and films. So, you know, I, I couldn't help but fantasize when I was writing the book being like, oh, it'd be so cool if one day this was a TV show. But I didn't write it to be made into a screenplay because I think the quality and by quality, I mean nature of screenwriting versus different. writing prose. It's so different. And I think you have so much less freedom with screenwriting. And, you know, you can't use literary devices and you're limited in the way you describe things. When you're writing prose, you have so much at your disposal in terms of how you craft. Um, and you're also in complete control of the entire world. Like you want to add a dragon, do it. Like you want to do anything, just do it in your prose. But... With TV, there is something, you know, suddenly you're bringing in, okay, well, the director might need to interpret this this way and we need to leave space for the actors to interpret certain things. Um, and we also don't want to get bogged down in, you know, descriptions of set. And so there's almost this relinquishing of control and suddenly this very private exercise of writing a novel because it becomes something so much more open and collaborative. It's been kind of refreshing to actually be able to work with other people. It's like, oh, I have colleagues again. Yeah. Um, but the process is very different. Hold up. 
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Okay, let's move on to the loves of your life that you've chosen. So the first one is an item of food that reminds you of home. So tell us what you've chosen. So I've chosen roti chanai. Uh, you know, Malaysians will know. It's like basically this delicious, flat, like kind of prata, but very, very buttery, oily. You see the dough before it's cooked on the griddle and it's just this like white ball, slipped up ball. Um, and then it's like flattened and rolled into a spiral and it's just cooked. And when you, you pull it apart, it's like doughy and delicious and you dip it in fish curry, chicken curry. Um, and you know, it just coats it, coats it in this red wash and it's so delicious. And whenever I go back home to Malaysia, you know, we go straight from the airport and we'll go stop in a mamak store, which is, you know, um, derived from like Tamil Muslims who cook these like traditional Tamil Muslim recipes, including roti chanai, um, and we'll just eat it and then go home. And it just feels like homecoming to me. And whenever I miss home, I stop by Roti King in Houston, um, pay an obscene amount for two pieces of roti chanai just to feel a little bit closer to home. But, you know, I sort of mention it because it just reminds me of family, Malaysia, where I grew up, and all of my friends from home as well. Did you go back to Malaysia very much? So I go back about once a year, which never feels like quite enough. And I haven't really lived there since I left school when I was 18 to move here. Um, but that's what was so nice about writing bellies and getting to write about Malaysian food. You know, Ming is Malaysian um, and Tom and Ming go back to Malaysia in one chapter. And I think that's probably one of my favorite chapters in the novel. And they're sort of exploring Kuala Lumpur together. They're going round, eating all the food that Ming wants Tom to try. Um, and, you know, that whole chapter to me just feels very beautiful and I always sort of dip into it when I'm missing home. You mentioned Roti King. What what do you make of the food in London otherwise? <laughs> do you find? You know what? Compar like... cause comparatively, I feel like it's just not on the you same scale. You know what? Scale. It's different. Like, <laughs> so, I think like there's sort of like a running joke between me and my friends that I'm like a weirdly staunch defender of British food. Oh, really? Yeah. I think, you know, when I think about it, a lot of like aversion to British food is boiled down to an extent. I know it's kind of like season, like seasonless, but um, 
or lack completely lacking seasoning but a lot of that aversion to British food is kind of rooted in some form of like classism that I've really noticed in the UK um but you know in Malaysia we fucking love fish and chips like it's like a real like people really love British food and I think that there's almost this like unwillingness to enjoy British food for what it is which is often like quite hearty um but I also think Food in London is really great. Like, so many good Chinese restaurants. Yeah. And very good, like, regional Chinese restaurants as well. But, yeah, no, I, but obviously the Malaysian food um, isn't, you know, there's, we don't have the same range here. But Norma's in Queensway is, like, my number one. Oh, really? Yeah, okay, I drive I'll for them. They're amazing. Do you cook much? I cook a lot of Chinese food. I cook Malaysian food occasionally. I love to make a rundung, which is this, like, very, very slow-cooked Malaysian curry um, you basically have this paste, which whenever I go back to Malaysia, we go, me and my mum go to like this wet market and we pick up the curry paste I like. And then I bring it home and you fry it a bit off the bit in some oil. You put your meat in and then you pour the coconut milk in and simmer it until the coconut milk completely evaporates. So over like more than three hours. And then it just becomes this sticky, fatty, rich mess of a curry that's like sort of perfect with some like sticky rice or roti chanai. Oh, that sounds amazing. Now I'm getting really hungry. Um, your second love is complicated characters. Yeah. Which I think it's very apt because of the characters you've obviously written about in Bellies. But tell us why you've chosen this and what you mean when you say complicated characters. I think, like we said earlier, just characters who which are fallible. Um, because I've always found those characters more relatable. I actually think like a seminal moment in like my creative awakening was watching Girls when I was a teenager. And, you know, obviously watching that show with a 2023 lens, it feels much more problematic than it did at the time. It has its problems, that's clear. But I feel like as a young person, as a teenager, it was my first exposure to really shitty characters. Like really, like, I was like, oh my God, like these girls are awful. But I also really relate to them. Mm. I think there's so much power in having these complicated characters who are like sometimes more good, sometimes more banned. Um, and there's just so much reality, you know, in that kind of portrayal of people. And it's why it's so nice to write a trans character like Ming, who also is that, you know, I want to fight for the right for trans people to be pieces of shit too. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting about girls because I think, like you said, it was one of those first pieces of popular culture where there weren't really any likable women in the main, yeah. as the main women. Yeah. And I know the show is like, was compared a lot to Sex and the City and it's, it, it wasn't because Sex and the City, all those characters were fundamentally pretty likable. Yeah. And in girls, they were all quite easy to hate. <laughs> no, exactly. But you know, I think it, that that that's life. Yeah. I think like all of us are probably at times easy to hate, mm -hmm. particularly when we're around those closest to us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting because I, I, I agree with you, like watching that show now, it is obviously quite problematic, but it was also quite ahead of its time in certain other ways, I think. Like there's that one episode, I think it's called American Bitch, where um, she goes to the house of an older writer. Yes. And it's yes. sort of like a pre-Me Too kind of story. Yeah. And I thought that was really, really well done. And there's certain things that you watch and you're like, oh, damn, they really, they like they were really clever and on it, but it was obviously kind of, kind of taken down with other things that were a bit backward. Yeah. And I guess sometimes with bellies, I'm like, oh, will this be in any way viewed as like problematic further down the line?
But I think as a writer, that's something you have to accept, that you're writing at a particular moment yeah. in time with the tools you have. And when that criticism does come, you just have to listen graciously. Mm. Yeah, I agree with you. It's interesting mentioning Sex and City as well, because I was just oh, thinking yeah. about the yeah. representation of trans characters in that Not show good. was, was Not absolutely good. dreadful. Yeah. Um, but, but then have you seen the reboot? I have seen the reboot. And I think, oh God, it's like, okay, like what's happened, you know, in those 20 years since Sex and the City ended. Okay, well, like um, BLM happened and, yeah. you know, trans people exist now. <laughs> that's um, literally, it feels like that's like, literally what like, they're trying we, to tell us. And I was like, okay, we're just going to stuff this in. <laughs> yeah. as I know. As, and I was like, okay, well, it just feels like so ham-fisted and not like very smart. No. Um, like, <laughs> I, I do think Che is like potentially like the worst character I've ever seen. I know, I know. And like not in that like fallible, I no. want complex characters kind of way. I was like, this is just not a good character. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Cause it's it's funny. Cause I like, it's like, yes, we need to move forward and be more representative, but yeah. not not like that. Yeah. <laughs> That's not it's helpful. Like, it's, like, it's, like, it's like the way they've done it doesn't feel um, meaningful. No, I agree with you. Um, okay, finally, you have chosen group chats, which is such an interesting one because I personally hate group <laughs> chats. So I want to know why you have chosen this and what you love about them. Yeah, so I chose group chats because, you know, there's, there's a sense of um, when you leave university, you're, you know, you're at university, you're surrounded by all of your friends all of the time, and then you're thrown into the big wide world. Suddenly you're all living in different areas of London or not even in London at all. And you're suddenly feeling very atomized. And I found that one thing that has always made me feel that sensation of being surrounded by friends is group chats, um, just being able to be in touch with people. And yeah, I don't wanna sound like one of those like, um, like middle-aged people from 10 years ago who like downloaded Facebook and they're like, wow, it's just so nice to be in contact with people I went to school with. But like at the same time, it's actually really nice <laughs> to kind of have a piece of that again. And you know, they've sustained, my group chats have like lasted years and years. And I think that's such a wonderful thing to just be able to be in contact with people and you know, kind of have a technological antidote to um, you know, the sense of loneliness that can come sometimes with living in a big city and working a really hard job. I quite like that group chats can start from the most like inane kind of reason. Yeah, like dinner on Thursday. Yeah, yeah. and those are the ones that last for years. Yeah. What, what are some of your like main group chats that have been around for ages? Did they start as like a kind of innocuous? Yeah, thing? I remember one, like my big one now started because like we were gonna buy my friend a birthday present when we were like in second year of uni yeah and so that group has like expanded it's like moved across different apps like it was on facebook messenger and now it's on whatsapp i just that's amazing it's like it's like kind of like um yeah it's like people have come and gone <laughs> But um, but it's like it, it's nice. It's just standard stood the test of time. And it's just like a catch up group. What kind of things do you talk about? Will you talk about like your day or something you've seen in the news? Or yeah, it's like everything from someone just saw like a famous person, or there's a funny meme, or something interesting has just happened in someone's day, or sometimes really long discussions. Um, but often about silly things. They're often like really light hearted, um, and it's a perfect example of what we were talking about about like maybe sometimes an unhealthy echo chamber. Um, but 
sometimes those echo chambers are comforting and necessary. Yeah, well, I think with dating, group chats are particularly comforting and necessary yeah. because you can be like, this person is an asshole. Yeah, <laughs> like what they just said. also lots of screenshots <laughs> from dating apps go, in, go into yeah, the chat as well. I can imagine. That's it for today. Thank you everyone so much for joining us. You can listen to Love Lives on all major podcast platforms. You can also watch us on independent TV, all major connected devices and all social media platforms. I will see you soon. Bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.